Good evening. I'm Jeff Bennett. And I'm Amna Nawaz. On the news hour tonight, death and desperation in Gaza. More than 100 people trying to pull food from an aid convoy are killed in chaos and Israeli troop fire. President Biden and former President Trump hold dueling events at the Texas border, showcasing their conflicting immigration policies. And women who've struggled to get pregnant share their personal experiences and their views on the Alabama Supreme Court ruling that jeopardizes in vitro fertilization. What is an embryo? Is it a person? Is it uh, a clump of cells? Is it have the potential for life? All of those things are, are still undecided. Welcome to the News Hour. 30,000, that's the number of Gazans the Hamas led health ministry there says have died in just 146 days of war. That grim threshold was crossed after one of the deadliest single incidents of the war. More than 100 people reportedly killed trying desperately to pull aid from trucks. The need is dire and hunger acute. The UN says more than half a million people in Gaza, that's one out of every four, are, quote, one step away from famine. The White House today called the deaths in northern Gaza tragic and alarming. And President Biden says it could complicate negotiations to pause the war and release Israeli hostages. Nick Schifrin starts our coverage. And a warning, the following report includes images that are disturbing. They went to retrieve aid. They returned instead with the dead. And the food they desperately wanted for their families now covered in their blood. It happened at 4 a.m. as Egyptian aid trucks arrived in Gaza City. The sound of gunfire on this footage aired by Al Jazeera as Gazans who'd come to gather aid began to flee. And afterward, residents walk away with bags of food surrounded by the injured. Israel released this footage of crowds that surrounded the aid and what it called tanks securing the convoy. That's when Gazans began fighting for food, said Israeli military spokesman Admiral Daniel Hagari. The tanks that were there to secure the convoy sees the Gazans being trampled and cautiously tries to disperse the mob with a few warning shots. When the hundreds became thousands and things got out, out of hand, the tank commander decided to retreat. No IDF strike was conducted towards the aid, the aid convoy. But at the Kamal Adwani hospital, where the injured were rushed in, eyewitnesses blamed Israel. We were surprised by Israeli tanks that came out and opened fire on people randomly and directly. This is my brother who went to bring food for his children. If aid is to come to us in this way, we do not want it. We do not want to live on the blood of our children. But the aid is desperately needed. The UN says in northern Gaza, one in six children under the age of two are acutely malnourished. Some don't make it. Doctors in Beit Lahia said this baby died of hunger and dehydration. A helpless mother left to grieve. To a man with an empty stomach, food is God. And for the Al-Awadeya family in central Gaza, salvation comes from a plant that, like them, can survive the harshest conditions, a thorny, prickly cactus. Today we are living in famine. We have exhausted everything. There is nothing left to eat. We eat cactus, even with its thorns. In southern Gaza, volunteers from the international humanitarian organization Med Global document children's nutrition rates. A UNICEF ruler shows an alarming truth. The UN says famine in Gaza is looming. Hunger is a major issue right now, uh, and the severe malnutrition among children is alarming. Dr. Zahar Salul is Med Global's president and co-founder. He volunteered in several clinics and hospitals in southern Gaza last month. When we were there, um, there were no food, no chicken, no no eggs, no milk, um, no uh, fruits and vegetables. Um, food were very expensive, so average adult eats less than one meal a day. Israel says there are no restrictions on aid and blames the limited flow of aid on the UN. U.S. officials believe part of the problem is that Israel targets Hamas fighters who would be guarding the aid. 
leaving convoys vulnerable to the kind of incident that occurred today. On Monday, Gazans flocked to the beach after Jordan airdropped aid into the sea, a drop into an ocean of need. U.S. officials confirm they are actively planning for the possibility of U.S. airdrops. This is something that has to be done because people are dying because of lack of food and lack of medicine, and this should not happen uh, in 21st century. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Nick Schifrin. For more on the humanitarian situation in Gaza, we turn to Jeremy Kanondike. He's the president of Refugees International. That's a global humanitarian organization. He previously served in the Biden administration as executive director of USAID's COVID-19 task force. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. This incident in Gaza City, as we saw in Nick's report, Israeli forces firing on a crowd of Palestinians waiting for aid. At least 100 people were killed. It's not clear how many people were killed from gunfire or in the ensuing panic. What more can you tell us about what transpired and, and really what contributed to it? Well, one thing that I think is really notable here is that the traditional humanitarian organizations seem not to have been involved at all. So this was, did not involve the UN Relief and Works Agency or other UN bodies that are normally involved in coordinating major distributions. Uh, this seems to have been organized more by the Israeli government. It was secured, as, you, as Nick reported, by Israeli tanks. Uh, that's, that's not typical of a humanitarian distribution, and it suggests this is Israel trying to find some other ways to show that they're doing something without actually working with the humanitarian capacity that exists in the territory. The UN says a quarter of Gaza's population is one step away from famine, infants dying from yeah. starvation. Your team was just on the ground there. What did they encounter and what did they witness about really the unspeakable devastation there? They heard uh, just shocking stories of the, the damage from the war. They talked, to, uh, they talked to one man who was a pediatric surgeon in the European hospital in Khan Yunus who told the story of his, his brother and his nephew. So his brother had a, a child, five-year-old child with cerebral palsy who uh, had, he didn't want to evacuate their home because the child didn't do well outside the house. Their house was raided by the IDF. Both of the parents were killed, uh, and the child's older brother then had to drag him uh, overnight to the hospital. Uh, the five-year-old had caught shrapnel in the face. He ended up losing his eye. Um, you know, it is just all of these stories of incredible deprivation, incredible harm to civilians, and really, you know, as we saw with the report today, to all appearances, really indiscriminate military action by the IDF. The Biden White House is considering airdropping aid into Gaza, given the dire need and the slower pace of land deliveries. You could argue that that's one solution, but not the best solution, given that, you know, how do you get aid to 2.4 million people? Are there other viable routes to not just get aid in, but to make sure it is delivered in a fair and logical manner? Yeah. Uh, so when I served, I served previously in the Obama administration and my disaster response there. So I used to coordinate airdrops like this, and we only used them when we had absolutely no other option because they're the worst way to get aid in. They, they cost a lot of money, they are difficult to mount logistically, and they get very little volume in. What we need to see is opening of border crossings. We need to see Israel doing much more to facilitate humanitarian action. They have been actively blocking humanitarian groups from getting into northern Gaza and restricting access even to southern Gaza. We're only resorting to airdrops because, uh, because of the blockages by the Israeli government. The other side of that, though, is how do you do that when the IDF is fighting the better part of, what, some 20,000 Hamas fighters who are underground with hostages yeah. who are engaged in this high-intensity combat operation against the IDF? They are engaged in a pretty difficult uh, combat operation. They've also conducted that in an extraordinarily indiscriminate way now for five months. And uh, the way that they have conducted the war, even U.S. government officials, even the president himself has said it's indiscriminate and, uh, you know, the words he used, over the top. If they had conducted this war differently, it would be a lot easier. It would not be easy, but it would be a lot easier for humanitarians to operate there. But the way Israel has conducted the war has made it nearly impossible because they have not done it in line with international law and the expectations outlined there. As Amna reported earlier in this broadcast, the Gaza Health Ministry is reporting now that 30,000 Palestinians have been killed yeah. by Israeli attacks since the start of this offensive. That figure, even though it comes from the Gaza Health Ministry, is, is widely viewed as the most reliable figure available. What does that say about the way that Israel is conducting this war? I think it just underscores the indiscriminate nature of, of what they've done. 
um, to go five months to have made as little progress as they have against their own objectives, their own military objectives, uh, while incurring this amount of civilian damage, it, it is the definition of, of disproportionate and indiscriminate military action under international law. And um, you know, the US government has yet to take a firm stance on that. They're going to need to, because the Rafah offensive, which could be looming in the next few weeks, uh, would put to, you know, would, would overshadow anything that's happened in this war to date. Every offensive so far, people have been able to move out of the way. Not everyone, but a lot of people have been able to move out of the way. With Rafa, there's nowhere left to go. So this would be happening amidst a civilian population in a literal tent camp. It would be devastating. Jeremy Kanandike, thanks so much for your time and for your insights this evening. We appreciate it. My pleasure. In the day's other news, fire crews in Texas fought to gain ground on what's now the largest wildfire in the state's history. It's already burned across more than a million acres, an area larger than the state of Rhode Island. In the Texas panhandle, heaps of ash are all that's left of these families' former lives. You know, it was heartbreaking. Uh, it's our home. The Smokehouse Creek fire claimed Jason Wilhelm's house in the town of Canadian. He was away. His wife fled with what she could. A lot of sentimental things, blankets, pictures. Uh, the kids got some of their toys, a few things. Uh, but other than that, that's really it. About all she could fit in her car. The fire is the largest in a cluster still blazing in the panhandle. By this morning, the Smokehouse Creek fire alone had burned more than 1,700 square miles and was just 3% contained. Earlier this week, unseasonably warm temperatures and high winds sent flames barreling across farmland and through towns, fueled by dry grass and vegetation. You gotta go. You gotta go now. Okay. Hundreds were ordered okay. to evacuate, but unpredictable conditions pushed walls of fire across highways, blocking an escape. An 83-year-old woman was found dead in her burned home in Stinnett, Texas. Officials say scores of houses have been destroyed and tens of thousands of cattle could be lying dead in scorched fields. Satellite images showed the town of Fritch in Hutchinson County before and after the Deuce fire reduced it to ash. I know that there are a lot of people still waiting to get into Fritch. Deidre Thomas with the county's emergency management department warned residents to brace themselves for the damage. The easiest way to put this is I don't think a lot of the folks that live in the Fritch area are probably going to be prepared for what they're going to see as they, they pull into town. Officials also predict the flames could pick up again this weekend. I don't want the community there to feel a false sense of security that all of these fires will not grow anymore. For now, cooler temperatures and lighter winds have opened a crucial window for firefighters to tame the blazes. On Tuesday, another fire burned close to the nation's main nuclear weapons assembly plant near Amarillo. The site reopened after the fire shifted north. Former President Donald Trump today appealed a ruling that bars him from Illinois' presidential primary ballot. The judge found he incited insurrection, the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol. Mr. Trump's lawyer argued that, quote, staying the judgment until the Illinois appellate courts finally decide this case would reduce the great risk of voter confusion. The U.S. Supreme Court is already considering a similar case from Colorado. Congress is moving to head off a partial government shutdown this weekend. The House passed a short-term spending bill today and sent it on to the Senate. The measure funds one set of federal agencies through March 8th and another group through March 22nd. In Russia, President Vladimir Putin has renewed his warning to the West that it could risk nuclear war over Ukraine. That comes after French President Emmanuel Macron said this week that sending NATO troops to Ukraine should not be ruled out. Putin responded today in Moscow in his annual address to Parliament, painting Western leaders as reckless in their support for Kyiv. We also have weapons that can hit targets on their territory. What they are doing now trying to scare the whole world, it does risk a conflict with nuclear weapons, which means the destruction of civilization. Don't they understand this or what? The United States and other NATO members have already said they would not send forces to Ukraine. 
Back in this country, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin got grilled at a House hearing for letting the president and others go days without knowing he was hospitalized last month. He said there was no lapse in command structure while he was treated for complications from prostate cancer surgery. At the same time, Austin acknowledged to Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik that transparency is essential at all levels. If a service member was in a hospital, I think uh, the chain of command would, uh, would be concerned about why they're in a hospital and, and, uh, and make sure that uh, they're doing the right things to take care of them and their families. But don't you think it's their responsibility to notify their commanding officer? I, I think... Uh, the answer is yes. Possible, yes. In, in my case, uh, you know, I, I would expect that my organization would do the right things to notify uh, senior leaders if I am the patient in the hospital. A Pentagon review of the incident has concluded there was no indication of ill intent or any attempt to cover up. The Biden administration will investigate smart cars made in China that could gather data on drivers and track their locations. U.S. officials warned today they pose a risk to national security. In a statement, the president said, quote, China's policies could flood our market with its vehicles. I'm not going to let that happen on my watch. And on Wall Street, stocks finished their fourth straight winning month. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 47 points to close at 38,996. The Nasdaq rose 144 points to an all-time high. The S&P 500 added 26 and also reached a record high. For the month, the Dow gained 2 percent, the Nasdaq surged 6 percent, the S&P was up 5 percent. Still to come on the news hour. A Palestinian-American artist's exhibit in Indiana is canceled in response to the Israel-Hamas war. A community parks advocate gives her brief but spectacular take on the power of nature, plus much more. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. Today, President Biden and former President Trump made separate visits to two towns along the southern border as immigration becomes a key issue ahead of the November election. Laura Barone Lopez has been reporting from Brownsville, Texas, on the president's trip. In his second visit to the Texas-Mexico border, President Biden met with Border Patrol and immigration officials in Brownsville, attempting to turn the tables on his likely 2024 rival, former President Donald Trump. Here's what I would say to Mr. Trump. Instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, join me, or I'll join you, in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. We can do it together. You know and I know it's the toughest, most efficient, most effective border security bill this country has ever seen. Meanwhile, some 300 miles west along the Rio Grande in the town of Eagle Pass, Trump attacked Biden and again demonized migrants. Now the United States is being overrun by the Biden migrant crime. It's a new form of uh, vicious violation to our country. It's migrant crime. We call it Biden migrant crime. The showdown here at the U.S.-Mexico border is set to be a defining battle of 2024, a fight guaranteed when Republicans killed a bipartisan deal designed to stem the flow of migrants and funnel billions to border security. What do you hope President Biden's trip accomplishes? You know, hopefully he takes some good out of this trip and hopefully when he meets with the Border Patrol agents, they give him an idea of what you can work from. Um, anytime you want something done on the front line, you need to talk to the front line workers. Chris Cabrera is the vice president of the National Border Patrol Council, a union representing 18,000 agents nationwide. The union supported the bipartisan deal. Do you want it to still pass? You know, that's the hope. Um, but at, at the, on top of the, you know, at the end of the day, Anything will help. Um, I know there's a, there's the power of the pen. There's there's executive action that he's done in the past with with other issues. Um, he has the power to, to put a stop to this today if he wanted to. Um, granted, you know Congress does have some fault in this. They've been uh, kicking the can down the road for for quite quite a few years. Not not one side or the other, but but both sides. And if if they're not going to do it, then either we get somebody in there that will, or, or the president needs to take action like the last president did. With the Senate deal all but dead, sources have told NewsHour that President Biden is considering using his executive authority through a decades-old law to block some asylum seekers from entering the U.S. While state and federal authorities clash in Eagle Pass, becoming a national flashpoint, 
Here in Brownsville, advocates say things are different. We often hear that the border is chaotic, but it's orderly, it's not chaos. Astrid Dominguez is the executive director of Good Neighbor Settlement House, which is one of the groups that helps welcome asylum seekers in Brownsville. What would the impact be for migrants if the U.S. were to put in place more severe asylum restrictions? Seeking asylum, it's a right. And we want to make sure that as a country, we're looking at solutions that allow them to seek asylum in a safe way and not putting them in danger. Despite the danger, some are still making the long journey with their children. Roxana just arrived from Cuba. It was difficult because we had to travel with coyotes and we had a small child. I cried a lot. It was terrifying. I'm 22 years old. I don't know how I did it, how I was able to flee with my son. It's something that I just don't know how I did it. But I accomplished it and we're here and that's the most important thing. Fleeing Venezuela through the Darien Gap, 22-year-old Luria was robbed twice before arriving for her appointment with Customs and Border Protection. I want a better life. I want a better future for my son, and I just want to start a new life. Jeff, Jeff, those migrants are arriving uh, through the CBP-1 appointment system app that President Biden has urged asylum seekers to use rather than cross irregularly into the United States. But overall, Jeff, crossings are low here right now in Texas. And Laura, let's return to what we heard today from the current and former presidents. We heard uh, Donald Trump with his criticisms of Joe Biden. How do Mr. Trump's stated concerns and contentions square up with the facts and with your reporting and what you're seeing there along the border today. Jeff, Chris Cabrera of the Border Patrol Union told me that there were only six apprehensions in Brownsville yesterday and that overall across Texas, uh, others, other uh, entry points, other border towns may have slightly higher apprehensions, but that it's overall low. But I want to point out, Jeff, and fact check one of the things that the former president said today. He was talking about uh, claiming that there was a migrant crime wave occurring. And the data just doesn't match up with that, Jeff. A Stanford study shows that immigrants are 60% less likely than native-born Americans to be incarcerated and that also in sanctuary cities, each unit increase in the unauthorized immigration population actually represents a 5% decrease in violent crime. And President Biden today, he also called on Senate Republicans to pass that uh, bipartisan border deal, but he said he might act alone. There's word of an executive order. Is that right? Tell us more about that. That's right, Jeff. An executive order could come in a matter of weeks. And that order, what's being considered right now, would severely restrict asylum seekers. It would narrow who can claim asylum. And I was talking to immigration advocates today uh, who have been in talks with the White House, and they're trying to convince uh, President Biden to essentially go a different route with an executive order, declare an emergency declaration, and just send more resources to the border rather than restrict asylum. It's important to note, Jeff, that asylum under current U.S. law is a right for migrants to claim whether they're presenting at a port of entry or between ports of entry. In meantime, Laura, there is this continuing dispute between Texas and the federal government over border security. Where does that stand right now? A federal judge today, Jeff, blocked a Texas law that would give police more authority to arrest migrants uh, that they suspect may have entered into the U.S. illegally. And I was speaking with an immigration lawyer today who said that they expect Texas will ask for a stay, uh, which would allow them to try to implement that law as legal proceedings move forward. But, of course, uh, they're going to be battling with immigration lawyers and advocates uh, who are trying to block this to take effect. And one thing that's important to to note, Jeff, is that uh, a lot of people can't always um, present at a port of entry when they're trying to come into the U.S. You know, there's a lot of reasons why they actually uh, present 
between ports of entry as they're trying to flee violence. And I also spoke with a lifelong Texan today uh, in Eagle Pass, Jeff. He's a business owner who's been really frustrated by Governor Greg Abbott's Operation Lone Star, uh, saying that initially he supported it, but that now he isn't really happy with what's been going on because governor, the governor has seized so much of the land and so much of the public property in Eagle Pass. Laura Barone Lopez on the U.S. southern border for us tonight. Laura, thank you. Lawmakers in Alabama have quickly passed bills to protect IVF clinics and providers so treatments can resume in the state. A state Supreme Court decision last week ruled that an embryo created through in vitro fertilization should be considered a person. Since then, three IVF providers in Alabama have paused some services, including the University of Alabama at Birmingham Hospital, the biggest hospital system in the state. The decision is rippling across the state and sparking fears in other states of similar rulings. We spoke with a few women who were affected. I am Danella Gelpin. I'm located in Birmingham, Alabama, and I'm 38 years old. When I heard the news about my particular clinic, I cried at my desk at work all day. I could not hold back the tears. My pressure has been up just about every day since um, the news hit. And I'm just pleading and hoping that the lawmakers well, just listen. My name is Emily Capaluto. I'm 36 years old and I live in Birmingham, Alabama. I am in between treatments, but I'm currently going through IVF. I just finished my second egg retrieval on January 31st and we are awaiting um, some test results. We were hoping that um, after the second retrieval, we would be able to move forward and um, beginning in March, schedule our um, first transfer and um, this, you know, this ruling has now put our whole timeline and all of our hopes in jeopardy. My name is Peyton Wade. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm 32 years old. I think it is absolutely horrific and shocking that this is the reality in the world that we currently live in. Um, as someone who is currently 15 weeks pregnant with my miracle IVF baby, um, I cannot imagine that IVF would be looked at as anything but a gift um, for people trying to achieve their family goals and just navigate the world of infertility, which is traumatic enough. Unfortunately, I had multiple ectopic pregnancies that weren't really and truly diagnosed. IVF was the ideal choice for us. And to be honest with you, it may be the only option for us. I disagree with the court's ruling that an embryo should be protected um, legally as a child um, because this embryo cannot thrive or grow without being um, in cryogenic fr freezer. Um, it can only thrive or grow if it's implanted in a uterus and is given the chance to be born. Sometimes some of these rulings can have a domino effect. Um, so while there are several Tennessee decision makers who have vocally said that they support IVF, that they do not see this coming to Tennessee, I think at the end of the day, you just don't know who is really going to stand up and do the right thing when push comes to shove. I am very, very worried that women that are facing the fight of their life from a cancer diagnosis now um, will have to further make tough decisions in terms of if they're going to wait and see what our courts do in order to potentially preserve their fertility and delay treatment, or if they will have to decide to immediately start treatments and um, lose the opportunity to have families in the future. We have three embryos that are still frozen right now. We have three embryos. And I am just hoping, even if it's just one, just that one, um, me and my husband and I, we would be happy if it's just that one. But I at least want to have the opportunity to try. Supporters of the legislation to protect IVF treatments gathered at the Alabama State House yesterday to speak with lawmakers. 
Barbara Calora helped to organize that effort. She's the president and CEO of Resolve, the National Infertility Association. She joins me now. Barbara, welcome and thanks for joining us. So we've seen lawmakers in Alabama move very quickly to pass bills allowing treatments to resume. The governor is expected to sign that into law. And the state's attorney general has said he will not prosecute clinics or doctors providing IVF treatment. So do all of those things combined ease your concerns about access to IVF in Alabama? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, you know, I'm listening to the providers on the ground in Alabama, those three clinics you mentioned that are paused. They believe that this uh, bill, if passed and signed into law, will give them an opportunity to start seeing patients again. Um, but I do want to say that, that there's still a lot to be um, determined in Alabama that is not totally uh, resolved with this, with this legislation. But um, for, 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 for now, the clinics are confident that they will be able to reopen and begin seeing patients again once this is signed into law. What is not resolved with the legislation as it, as it is right now? The law doesn't really talk about the status of an embryo. And so that was the real crux of that Supreme Court case was, what is an embryo? Is it a person? Is it uh, a clump of cells? Is it have the potential for life? All of those things are, are still undecided. Um, this bill protects those um, providers and patients from any kind of criminal, criminal or civil um, prosecution. So it gives them um, some immunity. and. Quite honestly, that was a, a big reason why they paused. And so we've got um, a lot of work ahead of us. Um, the good news is these clinics feel confident that they can soon reopen. So that's the case in Alabama. But we also just heard from Peyton Wade in Tennessee, worried about what she called a domino effect, that other states could also move forward with similar rulings or legislation. Do you see that concern as valid? I absolutely do. And the reason why I say that is because for many years, we've actually been fighting embryo personhood, fetal personhood bills in many states for many years, far before Roe v. Wade was overturned. When Roe v. Wade was, was overturned, uh, we were very, very concerned because we thought we would see a, a larger number of these kind of bills, which we did in 2023, and we've seen a lot already in 2024. And we don't have the protection and that backstop of Roe v. Wade if one of these passes. Um, and we know that legislators want to regulate IVF. We know that they want to define when life begins. And um, look, I was in the Capitol, um, Montgomery, yesterday. I was approached by folks who do not um, approve of IVF, who want it shut down. And they, they have a voice. And their voices are being heard, not only in Montgomery, but in other state houses. So at, we're talking about the state level right now, but at the federal level, we did see an effort by Democratic Senator Tammy Duckworth, who uh, herself relied on IVF to conceive her two daughters, proposing a bill to enshrine IVF protection nationally. That bill's path was blocked by Republican Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith from Mississippi. Do you see the only way to guarantee IVF access through some kind of federal legislation or move? I, I think it's, it's a number of things. I think the federal bill is an incredible uh, step and it's an important um, piece in that puzzle. There are some state constitutions that we're going to have to still get fixed, similar to what we have in Alabama. But that federal legislation is gaining a lot of ground over the last week or two, and we are strongly supporting it, and we need to get that passed. You mentioned a lot of what we've been seeing since the fall of Roe v. Wade. Where do you see this ruling in terms of the trend we've seen since then uh, when it comes to reproductive rights? Yeah, I mean, this is this has been on the radar all along. It's just, uh, I think, on the back burner. And I think this Alabama court ruling has really brought it to the forefront. We've already seen a few governors. Um, while some have said, oh, I totally support IVF, others have said, I think we need to look at this and I think we need to study it. And that concerns me greatly. So I, I think we're going to have our work cut out for ourselves in many states. That is Barbara Kalora, CEO of Resolve, the National Infertility Association. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Life sustains itself by cell division. So does cancer. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if we could block those proteins and stop runaway cell division? 
To that end, Dana-Farber laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs designed to treat many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Now, a story about an exhibition you cannot see. Some arts institutions have been roiled by tensions in the ongoing war in the Middle East. And one controversy has unfolded at the Art Museum of Indiana University, where a prominent Palestinian-American artist was scheduled to have her first American retrospective this month. Jeffrey Brown reports for our arts and culture series, Canvas. A work of art returning from an exhibition carried up the stairs to the New York studio of its creator, Samia Halaby. Here it is, the queen bee being treated like a princess. But this is no routine return. The queen bee was never put on display. The exhibition, titled Centers of Energy, and scheduled to be shown at the Eskenazi Museum of Art at Indiana University, was canceled in late December. The only thing they told me was two-sentence letter. The show is canceled and the artwork will be returned safely. That's all. 87-year-old Samia Halaby is known for her large and vibrant abstract paintings, which she's been making for more than 60 years. In addition, she creates sculptures and works with fiber and textiles and was an early practitioner of computer and digital art, teaching herself how to write computer programs starting in the 1980s. She's also a passionate supporter of Palestinian culture and advocate for Palestinian rights. She was born in Jerusalem in 1936 when Palestine was under British control, fleeing with her family amid the fighting that eventually led to the creation of the State of Israel in 1948, the period known to Palestinians as the Nakba, or catastrophe. Her family eventually came to the U.S. and settled in Cincinnati, Ohio. As an intellectual, I chose to be an abstractionist. I am a Palestinian, and I believe in the Palestinian will to have freedom. I believe in the right of self-determination and self-defense. I love Palestinian culture. All of these things are me. Her tie to Indiana University is strong. She received her Master of Fine Arts degree there in 1963 and later taught, before moving to Yale in 1972, where she was the first woman to have the title of Associate Professor at the School of Art. Her work is in the collections of major U.S. museums, including the National Gallery of Art in Washington and the Guggenheim in New York. And she recently had a large retrospective in the United Arab Emirates. The cancellation came as she was using Instagram to express outrage at Israel's bombing of Gaza in response to the October 7th Hamas terror attacks on Israel. She called Israel's retaliation a genocide and compared Gaza to Auschwitz. Though she was well aware of the tensions at universities around the country, including Indiana, she says the cancellation was a surprise. But I thought stupidly that I was immune because I was an alumni and belonged there. And so it came as a surprise. My first reaction was to be upset because, hey, this is my second home. You know, someone is now stealing my second home from me. But then I got over that quickly, and I thought, ah, the community there is really very upset about it. It's been quite a big deal, uh, and the fallout is still coming. Ethan Sandwise has been covering campus reaction at Indiana. Wait as a multimedia journalist with Indiana Public Media. We're seeing a lot of students and faculty organizing protests, sit-ins, teach-ins. A venue in town is putting on a retrospective in the place of the museum. Uh, so the response here has been quite significant. The university itself, however, has said little publicly. In response to the NewsHour's request for an interview with University President Pamela Witten, we were referred to this previously released short statement. Academic leaders and campus officials canceled the exhibit due to concerns about guaranteeing the integrity of the exhibit for its duration. Last month, University Provost Rahul Srivastav also cited security concerns at a faculty forum, saying in part, In this case, we had clearly competing values. 
We had an exciting debut exhibit of a major international abstract artist and alumna three years in the making. We also had a potential lightning rod at a charged political moment that might draw ongoing or major protests and require significant and long-term security we would need for hundreds of other events. Reporter Ethan Sandwise sampled responses across the campus. I haven't spoken with anyone who feels like this is a compelling enough reason to cancel the exhibition. I've talked to faculty members who say if there is a security risk, then that's why we have an IU police department uh, that can provide that extra security. So I don't think a whole lot of people are buying it within the IU community. Hallaby had worked on the exhibition for several years with a curatorial team headed by Elliot Josephine Layla Reichert, who told us she was instructed to refer press inquiries to university communications officials. In lieu of an interview, she sent an email statement to the NewsHour saying, I am immensely proud of the work that Samia Hallaby, Rachel Winter, and I accomplished together. Anyone who has the privilege to witness Hallaby's artwork in person will understand some small piece of the beauty and joy we have experienced working together over the past several years. The controversy at Indiana is just one example of the conflict in the arts and culture world since the October 7 Hamas attack, including 92NY, a cultural center in New York, canceled an October event with a novelist who signed a public letter critical of Israel. Several staff members resigned in protest and other authors pulled out of their events. The editor-in-chief at Art Forum, a prominent arts magazine, was fired after the magazine published an open letter from artists calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. At another Midwestern university, the Wexner Center for the Arts at Ohio State decided to keep an exhibition by a Palestinian artist that had opened prior to October 7 but it canceled a public panel she was scheduled to take part in. In a follow-up email to the university administration, we asked if it was aware of specific security risks, whether it had canceled the exhibition due to Samia Hallaby's public statements, and if it had received pressure to cancel the exhibition from politicians or donors. We were once again referred to the one-sentence statement. Samia Hallaby, however, believes she knows why her exhibit was canceled. Oh, it's obviously an extension of what's happening in Gaza. We Palestinians are not allowed to speak or express our opinion, or in my case, because it wasn't a political show, provide a, a, a role model to students as to what intellectual activity could be like. But a museum or a university in this case does have a right to decide who they're going to exhibit. Yes, and they decided to take me two and a half years ago, so <laughs> they changed when the, the uh, genocide began. So what gives here? So you have no regrets about using that language? Do I not have a right to express my feelings? My feelings is that I'm horrified. I'm equally horrified when I see other things happening. I'm equally horrified at the Holocaust of the Jews. I'm equally horrified at, about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I'm horrified by what happened to the African-Americans. When I read about all these things, they bring me to great sadness. Meanwhile on campus, a petition to reinstate the exhibition is circulating, and reporter Ethan Sandwise is hearing fears of another kind of fallout. A lot of faculty that I've spoken with are worried that these signals that the university could be sending, perhaps inadvertently, uh, that they are not standing strongly enough by their researchers. It could send this signal to people who might apply to IU as students, as graduate students, as faculty, that Indiana is not a place where they would be welcome and it's not a place where they would be able to perform their research undisturbed. As for Samia Hallaby, her work will next be shown at the upcoming Venice Biennale, one of the world's leading international art exhibitions. And her canceled retrospective exhibition is so far scheduled to run at its next venue, Michigan State University's Broad Art Museum, beginning June 29. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Jeffrey Brown. We'll be back shortly. But first, take a moment to hear from your local PBS station. It's a chance to offer your support 
which helps keep programs like this one on the air. For those staying with us, a new book is examining how innovation can lead to gains for all stratas of society, not just the elite. Economics correspondent Paul Salman meets the author in this Encore report. Spot the Wonder Dog, using AI to navigate tricky terrain. Already in service today at construction and manufacturing sites. And tomorrow? It could be something that helps workers be safer, helps them be more productive and therefore get a higher wage. Or the same spot could take people's jobs. So I think it's in the balance. In Power and Progress, economists Simon Johnson and Duran Asimoglu surveyed the history of technological progress and came to a sobering, if familiar, conclusion. Technology changes all the time, but it doesn't necessarily turn into shared prosperity. There's a few additional important steps that have actually been missing for a lot of human history. As in the Middle Ages. Take the medieval plow, for example, all the other improvements in agriculture uh, in Europe more than a thousand years ago. What we know is that productivity increased, but there was very little change in terms of the living conditions of ordinary folk. In the Industrial Revolution, textile tech. A power loom revolutionizing at a cost. When the Luddites are called machine breakers, these are the machines they're breaking. Yes, exactly. Looms like this at the Boston Manufacturing Company in Waltham, Massachusetts, were already displacing workers in England 200 years ago. When weaving became automated, all those people who had previously been handloom weavers, they got thrown out of work or, or they couldn't make much money. And the Luddites were really angry because it was the weavers who were making good money. Those opportunities eroded and nothing else sprang to take its place. So that, you know, this is not good for us and, and they were right about that. Workers ditched, business owners enriched. We, we have a, a steam engine back here. On the other hand, sometimes technological progress did lead to shared prosperity. This would turn these wheels, drive the belts, and transfer the power throughout the whole system. And then if you want to use a particular machine. And so in fits and starts, the new factories of the 19th century prompted the long process of harnessing technology. They offered jobs to people who also didn't have a lot of education. They were more productive. Demand for labor goes up, wages go up, and trade unions show up and say, hey, how about we pay an extra wage or people have the weekend off? Put that together. Yes, you've got shared prosperity in the 20th century. Labor organizations, Johnson argues, were key to ensuring everybody shared in productivity gains. And so it remained for almost a century. But since about 1980, automation has outpaced the creation of shared prosperity jobs, says Johnson. People with a lot of education have done well. People with not that much education still have jobs, but the wages at the low end have not gone up, and we're missing now that middle, and we've been missing it for 40 years. So it's not an overnight phenomenon. At the Exploring AI exhibit at Boston's Museum of Science, a car programmed by Toyota Research Institute scientists to assist drivers. The vision is not to replace human drivers. The vision is to make humans safer, better drivers. We do know there's 40 to 50,000 fatalities on the roads every year in the United States, and almost all of those are due to some form of human error. So the hope is that AI can reduce human error. The concern that AI will instead replace jobs, like taxi and truck drivers, or take this retail robot, for example. So this is an AI-enabled robot from Badger Technologies, goes through the store aisles looking to verify the prices and ensure that everything is properly stocked. So this is good for jobs or bad for jobs? Well, I think this one's bad for jobs, honestly, because you'd previously have a whole set of people working the night shift, restocking the shelves. Suddenly laid off, they'd be competing for other lower-skilled jobs, lowering wages. Same thing for drive-through robots. There are fast food chains that have announced that they plan to replace all the human interaction here. So that entire order placing and order communication in the kitchen becomes automated by a form of AI. That's a, a lot of jobs. And plenty of much better paying jobs are also under threat from AI. Even those of us who may have figured we were safe. Johnson first used the Chrome browser. We can search for you, Paul Solman, and we can get an AI-powered overview for the search. Are you sure you want to go there? Yeah, I'm fine. All right. Uh, you're American. You have brown hair. Okay. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll pass on that. Once uh, upon a time. Build fit. I mean, we could just stop right there. And you, you have blue eyes. Well. I don't have blue eyes. Well, you probably lied to the DMV once. <laughs> 
okay, not exactly reliable, but here's ChatGPT. Write a script for Paul Solman of the PBS NewsHour. A script for this very story. Here's a suggested script. Good evening, I am Paul Solman reporting on a compelling new analysis that's stirring debate in economic circles. <laughs> it's good so far. Cut to a visual of the book cover or relevant imagery. The work, Power and Progress, by economists Dorona Samoglu and Simon Johnson, challenges conventional wisdom on the relationship between political power and economic development. And so it does. Uh, it's not bad for a first pass. <laughs> I would have put in a bit more about technology, personally, uh, some steam engines and a little bit of an industrial museum ambiance. Well, that's what we've added. Right, that's the human touch. And that's what Johnson is pushing, our power to harness the progress of technology in the service of shared prosperity. What policies do you put in place to get Spot to augment people's labor as opposed to replace it? Just like this kind of device was, was really sparked by DARPA, the, the research, advanced research arm of the Department of Defense, when they were pushing for autonomous vehicles by having some grand challenges, you could have grand challenges where you challenge people to find ways to use these kinds of robots or AI in general to develop technologies that are useful for teachers, nurses, plumbers, electricians. As Toyota is doing, for example, but economy-wide. We've done it many times, World War II, after Sputnik, the Internet, Human Genome Project, COVID vaccines. The list goes on in terms of technologies d deliberately developed with government money and, and with social impetus, let's say. So this is uh, another task like that one. And with that thought, this story comes to a close, for which I might as well use ChatGPT's conclusion. This has been Paul Solman reporting for the PBS NewsHour. Back to you in the studio. <laughs>